Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you guys. Thank you for being here. If you got a spring break this week, I hope you had a good one. Hope you feel rested and rejuvenated and ready to take on the week starting tomorrow, right? We're glad you're here. Um, if you have your Bibles, we're, we're in Luke. We're in the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 18. We're continuing our journey through this wonderful Gospel. And so um, today is actually the last day of kind of the, the middle section. We, we broke Luke uh, down into three different sections. And so this is kind of the middle section, the on the road again section, hence the Willie Nelson music as I walk out. Um, next week, Jesus arrives at the destination. Jesus rides into Jerusalem. Um, he rides in like a king. We'll look at the triumphal entry next Sunday. Um, but this is the, the last... Um, the last of the middle section, we're going to look at a conversation that Jesus has with um, a guy that we know as the rich ruler, okay? This conversation Jesus has right here, Luke 18, um, and, and I would say there's a lot we can learn from the interaction that Jesus has with this particular man. Um, you know, there are some people in Scripture who are to be emulated, you know? There's people that we look at, both Old and New Testament, and we look at their faith, and we look at the way they walked with God, and and there are some things we look at and go, yeah, we can learn from them. We can gain some wisdom and some insight by patterning ourselves after them. And then there's also people in Scripture that are the other way, right? They're, they're people who hopefully we can learn from, but not in a positive way. There, there's, there's people that we can learn from their sin and their mistakes and their folly and their lack of wisdom. And hopefully if we're humble enough to sort of receive it, uh, we can learn from their lives as well. That's kind of the category that the rich ruler falls into. And hopefully we can learn uh, from his life today, um, even though it's not a positive example, okay? And so I just want to jump in Luke 18, and we will uh, just unpack this story and this conversation that Jesus has and, and hopefully prayerfully apply some things to our lives, okay? So here's what happens. Luke 18, verse 18 says, And a ruler asked him, Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. Okay? So right away, um, you have this man approaching Jesus. And the only things we really know about the man from the scriptural text is that he was rich and he was a ruler, okay? So he was rich, and he was powerful, okay? That's literally all we know about him. I would say that that's two things that most people in the world are trying to be. They're trying to attain, right? Most people um, are, are simply trying to climb that ladder, and if given the choice, they would choose uh, rich and powerful. Like, that's kind of where they're trying to get. Maybe, maybe to differing degrees, but... That's a, those are two things that we all would go, yeah, sign me up, out of the, given the options, I'll take rich and powerful. That's, that's who this man is. In other words, he has attained. He is someone that in his day and his time would have been greatly admired by everyone around. People would have looked at him and thought, man, that guy has arrived. He's arrived. He's rich. He's powerful. He's climbed the ladder of success. He has reached the height and, and so um, that's literally all we really know about the guy. But right off the bat in the conversation, he makes a couple of errors, okay? The first one, Jesus sort of calls him out for in that he approaches Jesus and says, good teacher, tell me what I need to do, right? So 
good teacher, his view of Jesus, he sort of boils Jesus down. His perception of who Jesus is, is nothing more than a good teacher. He doesn't believe that he is God. He believes that he's just a good person. I would say there's a lot of people that think that about Jesus. I've said this before in sermons, but at some point in our lives, in every one of our lives, we are going to have to come to terms with the simple question, who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? Some people just think, hey, he's like, you know, he's like Gandhi or Mother Teresa or a a long list of other really great, you know, well-meaning people that, that are just really great teachers and in their life did a lot to sort of help people. And that's apparently this man's view of Jesus. Hey, he's, a, he's just a good guy. He's a good rabbi. He's a good teacher. And Jesus kind of rebukes him. He kind of rebukes him. He goes, before he even gets into the full conversation, he just goes, hey, uh, why are you calling me good? Essentially, Jesus is going, look, if that's all you believe me to be, don't, don't sort of boil you know, Jesus down to nothing more than a good teacher. He's like, hey, don't call me good unless you believe I'm God. And clearly, this man doesn't believe that he's God. And so just to be clear, again, We don't believe Jesus was just a a really great person. We don't believe that Jesus was just a really great teacher, a really good guy that did some really cool, neat things. Again, we believe Jesus was God in the flesh. He didn't live a better life than most people. He lived the best life. He was completely sinless in all that he did. And so this man first approaches Jesus, and he has the wrong view of Jesus. A lot of other uh, whole belief systems and, and religions believe this very same thing about Jesus. That he was a good guy, a good teacher, a good man, but they don't believe that he was God. They don't believe that he was God. And this man didn't either. So Jesus sort of gently rebukes him. Um, And then the second error that the guy makes is he sort of approaches Jesus with his resume, right? He approaches Jesus with, look how great I am. I'm a pretty great guy. Um, I've done all this stuff, you know, again, rich, powerful. I've, I've climbed a ladder. I've accomplished all this stuff on my own. And now he's asking a really fundamental question. What else must I do? What else must I achieve in order to have eternal life? I've done all this stuff. Now, what do I need to achieve in order to have eternal life? And again, hopefully if you've been coming to um, our church for any length of time, um, you have begun to understand that Christianity is very, very different than other religions and other belief systems, right? We fundamentally believe that salvation is not something that is achieved, it is something that is received, right? For the Christian, salvation is not something that you achieve, it's not something that you do, it's not something you can work really hard and earn. Um, Salvation is something that is a free gift, freely given to be freely received. Jesus accomplished everything at the cross that needed to be done for your salvation, There's no work left to be done. It is a gift of God, freely given, freely received, okay? And again, I said this in the first service, but if hopefully you understand that, and sometimes when we say some of these sort of fundamental beliefs about Christianity, uh, it, it feels, it can have a feel like preaching to the choir, like, of course, we all know that. But again, every, any given Sunday and any given service, there are people that may go, you know, they're just checking out church for the first time or they're not really sure about this whole Christianity thing. And so I just want to be very clear that, again, we don't believe that salvation is something you do and you earn. Like had this man approached any other religious leader, he probably would have gotten a very different answer to that question. 
Had he approached another religious leader, he might have gotten a, you know, well, here, here's all the stuff you do, right? Do this, do this, do this, do this, and do this. Don't do, here's the list of stuff you don't do, right? Don't do this, don't do this, don't. And if you can do all the, you know, this stuff and avoid all of this stuff, then at the end of the day, like scales, you'll probably be good, okay? You know, if you just pray enough or maybe even pray in the right direction or maybe if you take a spiritual pilgrimage to a certain place, if you, if you do all this stuff and you avoid all the bad stuff, then again, at the end of the day, there's this judge that'll kind of weigh and if, you're, if you're, your good stuff outweighs your bad stuff, you're fine. Christianity works all together differently. It's not about how good you are. It's about how good God is. It's not about your accomplishments. It's not about what you have done. It's what Jesus has already done for you. It's a free gift to be freely given and freely received. That's his first his, first, his, his, his second mistake, really, is to come to Jesus with his, his resume. Here's all my stuff. I've achieved. Look at me. In fact, Jesus even asks him about the commandments. He's like, look, there's over 613 commandments in the Old Testament. They're sort of boiled down in Exodus chapter 20 and what we know as the Ten Commandments. And Jesus just rattles off some of them. He doesn't even list all of them. He just lists some of them, right? Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And the man is like check, right? Done it. I'm good. Ever since I was little, done all of them, right? In other words, the guy's going, I'm not saying I'm perfect, but I'm pretty close, right? Like I'm, all my friends think I'm, I'm a pretty big deal, Jesus. Like I am good. I'm a good dude. I'm a moral dude. Everybody wants to be me. I'm the most humble person I know. Like I'm amazing. I am amazing. That's kind of what the guy's saying. Here's my resume. Here's all my stuff. Check, 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 check check. And then in one statement in the next verse, Jesus completely reveals the man's heart. Or better yet, he reveals the man's idol. He reveals the man's idol. Look what happens next. Verse 22, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. In one statement, the man comes to Jesus. He's like, look at me. Look at how powerful. Look at all the stuff I've attained. I've climbed the ladder of success, Jesus. Oh, the commandments? Done them all. Check, 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 check. I'm pretty good. And Jesus goes, yeah, that stuff doesn't really impress me. I tell you what, why don't you sell all that stuff and then come follow me? And the guy, you can just see his countenance change. Oh, wait a minute. You mean... You mean sell everything? You mean like, like all the stuff I've worked so hard for? You mean like leave that stuff? I mean, come on, Jesus, I don't need to be taking advice from a homeless dude, right? Like, you know that that, that, ain't, I, that, that's, that stuff helps me, my, my status. You know, people see me, you know, uh, it helps my perception. And Jesus just completely reveals this man's heart. He completely gets to the core of his idols. And that's really the core of what I want to talk to you about this morning is, is idolatry. It's idolatry, man. It's putting things in the position of God. This man is unwilling to part with his riches. He's unwilling to part with his wealth. You see that riches, possessions, and wealth are the ultimate in this guy's life. Now, I want to, you know, I want to talk more about idolatry than riches and money and wealth. I know whenever a pastor talks about, you know, money, possessions, and wealth, some of us just get real uneasy, don't we? We're like guarding our purses and our wallets. I just know they're going to take a special offering later, right? Like, here we go, right? We're not relaxed. We're not, we're not doing that. We're not, taking, we're not taking some extra offering. The ushers are not going to shake you down on your way out. You know, when you stand to sing later, you don't have to guard your wallet. It's okay. Um, 
But this man's particular idol, what was most important to him was his money, his possessions, and his wealth. It's all the stuff that he had attained, and he's unwilling to part with it in order to follow Jesus. He's unwilling to part with it in order to follow Jesus. And I would say that for most of us, when we think about idolatry, maybe our first, our first inclination is to kind of go Old Testament and think about kind of Old Testament idolatry, you know, where Moses walks down from the mountain and all the people are worshiping a golden cow or something. Like, I'm, I'm pretty sure... I'm pretty sure none of you have like some golden image in your house that every time you walk in and out the door, you like bow down to or sacrifice to. If so, that is massive idolatry. Let me just tell you as your pastor who loves you, um, you need to get rid of the idol, right? Like, let's talk about this. But for most of us, no, that's silly. Like, we don't, we don't do that. We would know like, oh, man, that is, that is clearly wrong. What I would say for most of us, though, is that idolatry or idols in our life are much more subtle. They're much more subtle. They're usually, you know things that we, over time, give more attention and focus and worship to than we ever really intended to or they ever really needed. I think it was John Calvin that said the human heart is indeed an idol factory. We tend to take the good gifts from God, and ultimately, instead of worshiping the giver of the gift, we end up worshiping the gift, and those things become idols. And so I want to talk just for a moment. This man's idol was his money, his possessions, and his wealth. And maybe for you, that's not the thing. Maybe it's something totally different in your life. But I want to talk just for a moment about idols and things that we make idols in our lives. First thing I have down about idols is that idols, for us, they're often good things in the wrong place. Idols are often good things. They're just in the wrong place, right? So... God gives good gifts. God is a giver of good gifts, and, and he loves to bless his children. But often we take, again, those good gifts from God, and we just end up making those things ultimate. We take those things from God, and we put them in the wrong place. And that can be anything. Maybe, maybe it's a job, a career, a good thing. Man, it's a good thing to have a job, good thing to have a career. But, but sometimes when, when your job or your career become ultimate, it becomes an idol. And you sacrifice everything else in life for this one thing. Maybe it is some, some tangible thing. Maybe it is money or possession of some sort for you. You know, it's a good thing, nothing wrong with it in and of itself, but we just end up putting that thing in the wrong place and it becomes the ultimate thing for us that we can't ever part with. Maybe for some of us, let's be honest, even, again, really good gifts like, like marriage, like a spouse, like children, if put in the wrong place, can become an idol. It can become, your family, your family could become an idol. I don't think we set out and intend for that to be the case, but often it, it happens where we, we take something good from God and we make it ultimate. We make it the most important thing. And what happens often is as we make these really good gifts from God ultimate, we end up hurting and destroying the very good gift that God gave us. If you make your spouse ultimate, if you make your spouse the idol, then ultimately it could destroy your marriage. Your, your spouse was never meant to be a God. If you make your kids, I see this all the time with parents, you know, they, they have children and they, they make their children ultimate. And so they, they sort of want to control the kid and they put the kid and they're really protective of the kid and put the kid in this bubble and they, they live for the kid and they work for the kid. And they, they go to church for the kid and they stay married for the kid. And then what happens is when the kid leaves, the, everything sort of falls apart. The marriage is sort of over. And, and I've sat with couples in my office that are like, we don't know what happened. And it's like, well, the idol left, right? Everything falls apart. It happens all the time. Your spouse and your children are good gifts from a very good God, but if they're put in the wrong place, they can become an idol, and in the process, 
you think you're elevating them, and what can happen so many times is that it actually destroys them. It can destroy them. We've got to be very careful. Idols are often good things in the wrong place. And again, I mentioned this in the first service, but sometimes we even get real religious about our idols, where we, there's even whole churches and theologies that have systems where they, they're, they're sort of, uh, they sort of manipulate God into giving them their idol. So we've talked about some of those before. I mean, sometimes it's, you know, if you want riches, if you want riches and you want to be, you know, wealthy, just come to Jesus and Jesus will help you be wealthy. Oh, you're sick and you're not feeling well? Well, hey, if you just come to Jesus and have enough faith, he'll, he'll make you well, he'll make you better. Oh, you're single and you want to be married? Well, if you just come to Jesus, he'll give you a really great spouse. Oh, well, you want kids and if you just have enough faith and you come to Jesus, he is obligated to give you children. Like, and we see how we do this. We, we take these things and we, we almost believe this really false ideology that's not even in the Bible, that if we just come to Jesus, he's going to make all these things, give us all these things we want. We've got to be careful. We've got to be careful because idols are often good things in the wrong place. The second thing I have down is that idols are never satisfied. Idols are never satisfied. They always ask for more. Maybe you've heard this the other way around, that idols never satisfy. And I think that's true. Idols will always leave you wanting. They will not, sat, they will not bring uh, complete joy and peace in your life. They will never satisfy. But I think the opposite is also true. Idols are never satisfied. They always ask for more than we can give. They always ask for more. Because idols, by their very nature, they demand to be, they want to be worshipped. They want to be worshipped. And so in the end, they end up just consuming our lives because they're always asking for more. They end up taking over our lives. It's the reason some people, you know, again, they work too much. They eat too much. They drink too much. They, they, they've got to have this relationship because that's become ultimate for them. They just become all-consuming. It's the reason we have addictions because we take something that might have been fine, it might have been good, and we give everything to it, and it just keeps asking for more and more and more and more. And pretty soon, it takes over and it consumes because idols are never satisfied. They're never satisfied. They always ask for more. They always ask for more. Sometimes we think we can manage our idol. Okay, no, I know I've got this thing, but I can manage it. I can control it. I can put it on a shelf and only use it when I want. It's like people that think they can manage their sin, right? You know, I, I've got this issue. I've got this struggle. I've got this addiction. I've got this stronghold, but I can control it. I'm fine. You can't control it. Sin always asks for more than you can give. Idols always ask for more than we can give. They demand to be worshipped, and then pretty soon they end up controlling and consuming our lives. The third thing I have down is that idols always disappoint. Your idols will always disappoint because they were never meant to be God. Your idols were never meant to be God. And this is going back to what I said earlier. If you make your spouse an idol, you will be disappointed in your spouse and probably end up resenting your spouse because your spouse was never meant to be a functional God. If you make your kids, if you make your kids an idol, your kids will disappoint you. And you will end up resenting them over time. Again, we think we're elevating them. And in reality, it ends up hurting. Idols will always disappoint. They'll always disappoint because they were never meant to be gods. So Jesus just in this story, man, he just, after the guy touts his resume and how great he is, he just in one statement reveals the man's heart. He reveals the man's idol, which happens to be money, possessions, and wealth. And the guy's unwilling to part with any of that stuff. And then um, that's where the conversation really goes. He talks specifically about money. Look what he says next in verse 24. It says, Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, 
how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And then those who heard it said, well, well then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. Okay? Jesus here is using this illustration that they all would have been very familiar with, right? We don't have a lot of camels running around Central Texas, okay? Um, and I really wanted to get like a, a live camel in here because that would have been awesome, right? But it probably would have been messy. And so I couldn't do the live camel. So what I had, uh, I had Russell do for me is get us a picture of a life-size. I said, let's get the scale and the average-size camel. This is like life-size a camel, a normal average. I know there's different, but I don't need like the biologist in the room to send me an email this week. Like I know there's different types of camels and some, you get it. This is an actual size camel. Like I'll walk over here to the camel. This is, you know, I can't even reach the top of the camel's head, right? I could pet the camel right here, but that's, that's like actual size of a camel. Okay. They're, they were everywhere. Jesus would have been using an illustration that people would have been familiar with. And then there's a needle. I was going to bring a needle with me, uh, but I didn't want to carry that in my pocket, right? So you understand, needle really, really small, and you wouldn't have been able to see it anyway if I held it up. They would have had to zoom in with the camera and put it on the screen. The needle has a really, really small hole right at the top that you, you put the thread through, right? That's the eye of the needle. Jesus is, is basically, I think he's making this joke here. He's just revealed the man's heart. He's revealed the man's heart and said, this guy has a massive idol, money, possessions, and wealth. And he's going, look, it'd be easier for me to get that camel through this little, little bitty eye of the needle than for someone with, with this kind of idol in their life to get into the kingdom of God. Someone that money, possessions, and wealth is everything to them. They're unwilling to part with it at all. Yeah, they're going to have a real hard time getting into the kingdom of God. Like, it'd be better, it'd be easier for a camel to get through that eye of the needle than for that kind of person with that, that, that heart, that idol factory of a heart to get into the kingdom of heaven. And listen, I've talked about this idea before. Some people, I would say those from kind of the poverty gospel, right? You've heard me talk about prosperity gospel and poverty gospel. Prosperity gospel is like people that say, well, you know, if, you, if you're rich, that's a sign of God's blessing and God's favor. And so you're closer to God if you have a lot of stuff. Your faith is, you must, you know, if you're poor, you just need to have more faith because Jesus, you know, then he'll really bless you. That's called prosperity gospel. It's not biblical. It's a lie. Don't believe that, right? But the other side of that coin is some people have a poverty gospel where they would say, well, no, Jesus loves, uh, loves you more if you're poor. Jesus loves you more if you're poor, right? Um, and so they'll point to a verse like this, take it out of the context and go, see, They'll quote it all day long, you know, easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for rich people to go to heaven, right? Got to be poor, sell all your stuff. Listen, this is not a blanket statement that all of us need to go sell all of our stuff if we want to go to heaven and have a place in the kingdom of God. This is not spiritual like asceticism. Asceticism is this, um, it comes from Greek philosophy, uh, Platonic dualism, where basically everything that is physical is wrong and evil and bad, and everything that is spiritual is good. It's again, it's not a biblical idea. Uh, you know, Jesus had wealthier friends. Jesus, he's not saying everybody needs to sell everything if you want to go to heaven. He's called out this man because his money, his possessions, and his wealth was his idol. It was ultimate in his life. He was unwilling to part with it. And he's going, look, getting the camel through the eye of the needle would be much easier. If, you have, if, you, if your heart looks like this guy. So using this, this illustration, Jesus just, again, completely reveals, completely reveals the man's heart. And I, and I know for a lot of us, man, we sit here and we're like, let's be honest, we've said it before, we, we are the rich. 
right? We are the rich compared, I mean, some of you may not feel like you're rich, but compared to like the history of the world and the way most people around the planet actually live today, we are rich. We are the rich. And I think the people that were listening to this conversation apparently felt the same way because someone pipes up and goes, uh, then who can be saved? If that's true, then we're all in a lot of trouble, right? If that's true, that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, that seems impossible to me, by the way, uh, then we're all in a lot of trouble because the people sitting there, much like us, are sitting here going, uh, we probably fall in the rich camp, which is why Jesus then follows up and goes, yeah, but what's impossible with man is possible with God. Jesus is going, God made a way. God makes a way. The issue is this man's heart. Listen, I want to end by just kind of briefly talking about, about money because that was this man's deal, and it may, be, it may be yours, maybe ours as well. But idolatry and money often go hand in hand because one of the quickest ways to discover your idol is to follow your money, right? One of the quickest ways to discern, to discover what your idol is, maybe to look at your budget, maybe to look at where all the money goes. Jesus said that in Matthew 6, 21, right? Matthew 6, 21, and Jesus says, hey, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your heart's going to follow your treasure. Your heart's going to follow your treasure. So let me just mention some things in closing that we have said here about money and possessions and wealth. And again, um, Jesus talked about money, possessions, and wealth, roughly 25% of his teaching. And so um, I feel like I'm not really doing my job as your pastor if we just never talk about it Um, because it was important to Jesus. I think it was important to Jesus because Jesus knew how easy it is for those kinds of things to become our master. He knew how easy it is for those kinds of things to become idols, and he didn't want those things to be idols in our life, but rather to be seen as good gifts from God. And so we, we want to say, I want to say three things really quick that we've said before that we just want to always keep in front of you in regards to money, possessions, and wealth around here, okay? The first one is this, that we should see ourselves as stewards, not owners, okay? We should see ourselves as stewards, not owners. God owns it all. It all belongs to God. We are stewards of what God graciously gives to us, and we want to steward those things well, okay? When you start to see yourself as an owner... You're going to have a very hard time giving and being generous and blessing anyone else because after all, it's yours. Mine, 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 mine. No, you're a steward. We're not an owner, okay? The second thing is giving, according to the New Testament, should be regular, sacrificial, and cheerful, okay? That's what the New Testament teaches about giving. I'm not going to get in. Old Testament principle of tithing is a really good principle. It's a really good habit, a really good practice to get into, a good place to start, but we are not under the law any longer. We don't get to pick and choose which parts of the law we are under. We're not under the law. The New Testament says that our giving should be regular, which means I don't just give when I happen to have a little extra expendable income at the end of the day. No, it should be regular and consistent. It also should be a little bit sacrificial. It shouldn't just be, well, again, I happen to have this much extra after I've already taken care of myself and everything I want and I've bought all the stuff I want and I've got everything, then if there's anything left, I'll give a little bit. Listen, giving ought to cost us something. It ought to, because it helps build that habit and that practice, right? It ought to be a little bit sacrificial. And then finally, it ought to be cheerful. Man, the New Testament, 2 Corinthians says, God loves a cheerful giver. God is not after your begrudging submission to a rule or a law. In other words, if you're the kind of person that's like, oh, I I guess I better give some something. I mean, I don't really want to, but I guess I will. Jesus want to, I don't want to get struck down by lightning. Well, I guess I'll just give some money. No, Jesus said he would rather you just keep it. Just keep it. 
And he wants, to, he wants to free your soul a little bit. He wants to give you some joy. Giving ought to be cheerful, and it's, my, it's a blessing for me to be able to bless other people, right? So that's what the New Testament says about giving. Regular, sacrificial, and cheerful. And then the final thing, it's a statement we've said many times, and we want you to just remember this, that when it comes to giving, that it is not about what God wants from you, it's what God wants for you. God is not trying to take something from you. God doesn't need your money in order to do something. God's not sitting up in heaven going, you know, I'd really love to do some work and save this guy over here if Bob would just give more money. I mean, I, my hands are kind of tied here, Bob. I need some, need some more money. No, God owns it all anyway. God can do what God wants to do with or without you, but God chooses to use us, man. He chooses to use us. So God's not trying to take something from you. God knows that when you're generous and when you give, when you bless other people, that it does something in your heart. It helps prevent money from becoming your master. It just has a way of freeing your soul and giving you joy. And so it's not what God wants from you. It's what God wants for you. Those are three things that we have talked about over and over and over again that we always want to keep in front of you in regards to money, possessions, and wealth. And finally, let me just say this in wrapping up, that we should have a treasure and we should worship that treasure. It's just that our treasure should be Jesus, right? Like we should have treasure and we should worship that treasure, but our treasure should be Jesus. He should be ultimate in our lives. Because again, Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Your heart is going to follow your treasure. So my challenge for you, my prayer, my hope for our church is that our treasure would be Jesus because our heart is going to follow that treasure. That maybe we get to places where we stop taking the gifts from God and making the gifts ultimate and worshiping the gifts and making them little idols and functional gods they were never meant to be. And instead, we make Jesus our treasure and our heart follows after Jesus. That's our hope. That's our prayer. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we are grateful today that you are a good and gracious God, that you're a good father who loves to give and to bless your children. God, I pray just kind of collectively in a spirit of confession and repentance for all of us, God, for those times when we have taken your good gifts and we have just put them in the wrong place. We've made them ultimate. We've made them these little idols, these little functional saviors that we run to. God, we just confess that we confess our idolatry. And God, I pray that we would not make the mistake of the rich ruler who is just unable to part with his idol, whatever that idol may be in our lives. So God, we're grateful for your sacrifice at the cross. We're grateful that you have done everything necessary for our salvation. We're grateful that there's no achievement left on our part, but that salvation is a free gift that we can freely receive. And God, ultimately, God, we pray today that our treasure would be Jesus. And that our heart then would follow that treasure. We pray this in Christ's name today. Amen.